Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. In raising a child, we're able to witness ourselves being reborn as another. But along with this version of immortality, we also gain a vulnerability unlike any we'd ever known. In my experience, becoming a parent changed my priorities in the most fundamental ways. My needs and wants became irrelevant when weighed against that of my child's health and safety. In fact, I'm much more concerned about their well-being than I'd ever considered my own. Although it sounds funny to say that aloud, I'm sure many listening know exactly what I'm talking about. And this leads to the concept of a parent's worst nightmare. The phrase may seem cliche due to its frequent use, but for the overwhelming majority of parents, the thought of something tragic happening to your child is a nearly unthinkable prospect. In tonight's story, we'll hear the details of an unexplained disappearance which has left a mother trapped in a perpetual version of the parent's worst nightmare scenario. It all begins in April of 2016 when 16-year-old Michaela Bali uncharacteristically skips her classes at Yorkton, Saskatchewan's Sacred Heart High School. At some point during this day she spent walking a twisting route through the streets of Yorkton, she seems to have simply vanished. With no indication of where she is or what may have happened to her, Michaela's mother is left hoping against the many parents' worst nightmare scenarios that have been haunting the darkest corners of her imagination. In tonight's episode, our story will be the unexplained disappearance of Michaela Bali, told via excerpts of my recent conversation with her mother Paula. I've been following Michaela's case since news began circulating about her disappearance, and month after month I've been saddened to hear she's not been found safe and sound. The genesis of this episode was a recent news spot where her heartbroken mother Paula addressed the public requesting any assistance possible to help find Michaela. I decided to get in touch and offer to spread awareness of this case to those of you listening. Michaela's mother Paula graciously offered her time and agreed to share the troubling details surrounding Michaela's disappearance with me in hopes that one of you may have information that will assist in her mission to reunite her family. Paula will introduce herself in the following clip. My name is Paula Bali. I am the mother of Michaela Bali. Um, I'm hoping that by going public with some information about Michaela, that that will certainly raise awareness about my daughter's disappearance. And also, the podcast seemed to reach a different maybe segment of the population or people of different interests who perhaps aren't as familiar with her Facebook and all those sort of social media outlets. When Paula and I connected to discuss Michaela's disappearance, our conversation began with some background on the Bali family. I've watched Paula and her children appear in several press appearances related to Michaela's disappearance. They came across as a loving, regular family. Here's how Paula described the family Michaela was raised in. Michaela's always been raised by me as a single parent, um, along with her brothers and sisters. So that maybe is a little bit um, unusual, but not that different for today's society. Uh, Another probably interesting feature about our home is uh, when I graduated from grade 12, went off to university, had, you know, other roommates 
Um, then my sister came to the same U of S and she studied there as well. We ended up becoming roommates. And quite honestly, we've kind of lived together <laughs> in the same home for all these years. And so Michaela and my other children have had the benefit of having an aunt who sometimes she teases and calls herself a second mom, but just a really a warm, loving, nurturing home. My sister Rhonda experienced a very bad illness. And so as a result, she became very limited in her physical function. And so she's presently in a wheelchair. At that point, um, my mom came to move in with us and provide care for my sister. So it's sort of this, this, this bigger family now. But we all live together in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. And if anybody knows, it's a small town of about 18,000. I guess in Saskatchewan standards is a city, but primarily an agriculture and mining industry area. So nothing too exciting. I personally have always worked in human service, and that's my background is, is in psychology, and I, and I work for the provincial government, and I would say our home is pretty typical. You know, the kids have their, their music lessons and whatever other interests they have. As you will hear shortly, the events surrounding Michaela's disappearance are such that the commonly discussed theories offer little more than speculation. To better consider Michaela's case, it's important to understand what type of person she is, especially when it comes to risk-taking and unpredictable behavior. Michaela is very quiet, sweet, shy, very giving, loved children, loved pets, a voracious reader, uh, loved wildlife photography, and really enjoyed birds. But we have so many fears in her yard and birds and squirrels, and that was her thing. She maintained all of them because she loves to take photographs of them. Loved children, that was actually her career aspiration, is to be a a kindergarten teacher, um, liked to bake. That was something she really enjoyed doing. And she, this is amazing to me because I can't do this. She made the most amazing homemade noodles with her grandma. <laughs> she had her own variety of smoothies she'd make, some like peanut butter. She was just quite accomplished in the kitchen. She also played a lot of piano and violin. Nikki was naturally musical, right? So she picked up quite well and she was learning and um, teaching with her little brother. So that was something they really, really enjoyed doing. Um, she's very good at drama. I think for a shy person, she kind of gravitated toward drama because I think it helps her become more confident and it helps her blossom in her personality. I really, really believe it was important for her. Just a lovely girl, but not not a an adventuresome, outgoing girl. And I think that's the entire irony of the situation we're in now is that Michaela is not an adventure at heart. So just a very balanced girl. She was really this easy kid to raise. And I always say that she was just a pleasure. And, you know, she just loved her family, you know, as, as most teenagers do. Probably not the greatest level of self-esteem, but not horrible either. She had some acne. And so um, when we finally got her on some medications that actually worked, you know, that was improving. And she was just really blossoming into this really lovely young lady. It was, I don't want to say pride in a self-important way, but I was really proud of the person she is and was. Like I had alluded to prior, Michaela's case had been heavily discussed on online forums such as Reddit and Web Sleuths. During my preparation for this episode, I spent a considerable amount of time reviewing the various theories being considered by the posters, many of which suggest this disappearance is the result of a young girl who got caught up in drugs or simply ran away with a new lover. Based on what I learned during this discussion, these theories seem very out of character and much less likely than I had initially thought. When Paula described Michaela's social life, the idea of her being a runaway seemed even less likely. Um, she had friends, but they weren't her life. 
uh, you know, with some teenagers, really, they're all about their friends all the time, and that's sort of where they live their life. And Kayla wasn't really like that. Um, she felt a lot of her friends were really um, sometimes immature, and she, she got a little frustrated with their um, lack of maturity. So sometimes I feel like Kayla's a bit of an old soul, right? She wasn't needy in a lot of ways, right? She didn't need attention. She didn't need those sorts of things. So she didn't currently have a boyfriend. She didn't have the time of disappearance. She just wasn't dating anybody. She, she felt some of them were too clingy or whatever and just wasn't really interested in anybody at that point. Didn't deal drugs, didn't do drugs. She didn't even drink alcohol. Wasn't involved in any gangs. Just, it sounds funny to say this, but she was kind of like a boring person. She wasn't really into anything. I think the most adventuresome thing she did was want a nose piercing. And they said, well, you can do that when you're 18. And she was okay with that. She had a small group of friends, but didn't party. Like she just wasn't into, um, she actually did stay home a lot. And she sort of had a code if uh, her friends were kind of asking her, bugging her to go to some party. She'd just say, and I gave her permission to say this. Oh, you know, my mom needs me at home. And so that was always kind of her standby. Right? If she was feeling peer pressure to do something or didn't want to go, that was her, her fallback. Right? She just wasn't a kid out there doing anything risky. That's, again, one of the ironies of Michaela going missing is it wasn't a repressive environment. So it wasn't like she felt like she had to go somewhere to do these things. She just really wasn't all that interested in doing those things. So. After being introduced to Michaela and the rest of the Bali family, this episode will switch our focus to the events leading up to Michaela's disappearance. As I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, Michaela should have spent April 12, 2016, attending her classes at Sacred Heart High School. However, uncharacteristically, she cut class, deciding instead to spend the day walking a twisting route through the streets of Yorkton and making a collection of stops to local businesses along the way. When we began discussing the events of April 12, 2016, I first asked Paula to describe what she remembers about Michaela's behavior that morning. Michaela and I actually ran the same schedule, and this kind of worked out best in her family. Um, so I get my mom to drop me off and drop Michaela off. So we, we pretty much ran the same um, agenda. So I, I get to work around 8-ish and Michaela shortly thereafter. So we would get up at the same time. I, I remember that morning, I get up a little earlier. She got up at 6.45. And usually in our day, it's like, you know, we'd spend, we'd spend time in the bathroom, you know, we'd blow dry our hair and color our hair and do our makeup. And that was sort of our time. And, you know, maybe we'd throw on some tunes while we're doing that and chit chat about our day. And that was sort of just a routine we had. So, you know, that day, I wish I could say there was something out of the ordinary. There was nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. Got dressed like every other day, did absolutely the same kind of things we do every morning no difference in the conversation and you know when we were we were leaving she said bye to her aunt because her her aunt was was up at the time too her little brother and sister were still sleeping she didn't even go wake them up to say goodbye or anything which might have you know maybe raised a flag or something in hindsight but literally there was nothing different that day that that sounds out in my mind and trust me I've wrecked my brain a million times just hoping that there's something that would have told me that something was going to happen that day. And, and there just there just isn't anything that's any different. After a morning as regular as any other, Michaela's grandmother drops Paula off at work and then drops Michaela off at high school. This moment, at least up until the present day, is the last time a Bali family member has seen Michaela. Grandma asked, can I pick you up at 3? And she said, yep, pick me up at 3 and walked off. Uh, or 3.30, sorry, walked off like normal, just average day. 
For Paula Bali, Tuesday, April 12th, felt like any other workday. As far as she knew, her daughter Michaela was in class and focused on her learning. As she is about to learn, April 12th is far from ordinary, and she's about to find herself living every parent's worst nightmare. You know what? Um, I guess that's one of the really um, difficult things with this entire situation is that we weren't notified that she wasn't at school that day. And so that particular day I was doing, um, we, we do televised teaching across the province around behavioral strategies. And so I remember that day it was, we were live most of the day. And one of the admin staff came to the door and knocked and said, your mom is here and she needs to speak to you. My heart started to fall because my mom has never done that. I walked out and opened the door and I seen the look on my mom's face. And she said, you need to come with me now. She was not at school. She wasn't there. And I went to pick her up. I don't know how anybody in life can be prepared for that moment. The child, you know, their entire life, you know that this is something she has never done. She has never not been where she said she was going to be. She's never missed a curfew. She's never done any of those things to ever cause me concern. And I, I think I tried to keep it together just to get to the school and say, like, where, where is she? What's going on? So I went to the school and uh, that wasn't a pleasant exchange either. It was just, you know, I'm asking, like, like where's Michaela? What happened? And they're like, well, well, I don't know. You know, she's not here. And I asked, like, like what's going on? Where is she? So eventually they called the school counselor who came, um, spoke to us, started calling her friends. The school started calling her friends. Where's Michaela? Have you seen her? Um, no, no, no. Nobody seems to know anything. I think at that point, yeah, the fear's not getting any better, right? Realizing that, uh, you know, something possibly inexplicable is going on at the same time you're saying to yourself okay you know she's 16 maybe she just you know went out for coffee this late coming home <laughs> you start trying to make excuses in your mind to what's going on paula knew something wasn't right as soon as she found out michaela wasn't at school to meet her grandmother as originally planned so sure in fact she had considered going straight to the police station to file a missing persons report but instead she held out hope that this was a simple misunderstanding as Michaela had a music lesson scheduled after school, Paula hoped Michaela had just found her own way there. Paula next would leave the school and go to the music lesson and wait for Michaela there, all the while calling and texting her phone repeatedly. Well, let's give her a few minutes. Let's keep texting and calling her and seeing if there's any response because she had a music lesson um, just shortly after school. And so I, I went there thinking, okay, maybe she just decided to walk there. She's never done this before in her entire life. <laughs> Maybe she decided to walk to music lessons. And so I was there for a while. And I have to admit, I was like a cat on a hot tin roof, just pacing and just, just frantic. After a short but agonizing wait, it became obvious Michaela wasn't going to show up for music lessons. This, as well as the repeated unanswered texts and calls made to Michaela's cell phone, made Paula absolutely certain something was wrong. After leaving the music lesson without Michaela, and in a state somewhere between shock and panic, Paula made the decision to involve the police by filing a missing persons report. To do so, she needed to stop by her home and collect some photos of Michaela. came home and said to myself, okay, take a deep breath. we got to go take pictures, take them to the police office. And so it's like, oh, I have to run and get a flash drive. So I grabbed the flash drive, and then I knew I, I ran downstairs, and I remember I was screaming, dear God, let the money be gone. And so what I do in my house is I have a cash box and I always keep at, at that time to the thousand dollars in their cash. 
um, for emergencies, right? And so, unfortunately, we've had to use that up. But we used to keep that uh, money there just for, like I said, I'm a single parent. What if we get a flat tire? What if the kids need a pizza after school? You know, what if they want to order something in or whatever? So that money was always there, and Michaela had access to it. So I remember running down the stairs just screaming, dear God, let that money be gone, let that money be gone. And I opened it up and every cent was there. And the jewelry that's valuable was there. And that's when I knew that she didn't run away. That's something else that happened. And so I think sometimes we think about our life, there's, there's pivotal moments in our life. And Michaela's birth was definitely one of them. And I remember looking at that little face and saying, it's you, me against the world, honey. And then another time was literally running down the stairs looking at that money and just begging it to be gone. Because at least I knew she was making her own choices. And as a parent, that's that's the most important thing is that they're making their own choices. Even if it's not the choice I want, it's still her choice. And so I think those are, in my whole life, probably two of the most pivotal slash painful moments As you just heard Paula explain, the realization that Michaela was in fact missing and unlikely to have run away was a life-changing moment. With some photos of her missing daughter in hand, she would go to the police station and ask for help. So um, we continued to call, text, call, text, nothing. There was just no answer, right? And, And it wasn't going immediately to voicemail. It would ring the four times and then go to voicemail. So I thought, well, maybe she just you know, lost her phone too, or <laughs> you just start thinking really abstract thoughts, right? Trying to justify in your mind that something is okay when it isn't. So my mom went with me to um, to the, um, I hate to call it cop shop, to the police station, <laughs> and um, kind of losing it there. <laughs> I remember at one point I had to walk away because I was just, I just screamed because it was so unbelievable what was happening. And it was really horrifying experience and I hope that nobody ever ever has to to go through that experience it's just it's unbelievable when this missing persons report was filed the message the police gave Paula is the same as it is today over a year later they took our um our statements right away and they just said go home and wait we'll look for her we'll call you <laughs> so 15 months later we're still I'm still waiting for that phone call and the reality is they have no idea where she may be. Um, the reality is she could literally, in their words, be anywhere in the world. At this point in the episode, we've covered the events of April 12, 2016 from Paula's perspective. As you've just heard described, concern began when Michaela's grandmother arrived to the school to pick her up, ultimately learning she in fact didn't attend classes that day. During the days, weeks, months, and now years since, Paula and those assisting her in the search for Michaela have been busy collecting the various breadcrumbs Michaela may have left behind in hopes they lead back to her. In the search for Michaela Bali, the investigators would first focus on retracing her steps in the hours after she was last seen. By collecting surveillance footage, gathering eyewitness reports, and canvassing the businesses in the areas surrounding the school, a timeline of Michaela's last known moments was developed and presented to Paula. The timeline has generated many questions still waiting to be answered. The police did the entire timeline. 
um, when they sat down and went through it with us, some of it, I, I just, it just didn't seem like Michaela, right? Like, why would, you know, Michaela stop at a pawn shop? She was frittering away time that, that morning, definitely. As to what was happening that day, she looks like she just wasted time. In the following series of clips, we'll walk through what is known about Michaela's activities on April 12th. If you want to follow along visually, I have a graphic version on my website, nighttimepodcast.com, and I've linked to it in this episode's show notes. We've already heard Paula describe the average morning at the Bali household, which ended in Michaela being dropped off at Sacred Heart High School by her grandmother. The timeline that police presented will begin at 8.20 a.m., when Michaela steps out of the car. As she does, she waves goodbye to her grandmother and reconfirms their plan to meet after the school day is through, and she then enters her school. Ten minutes later, at 8.30 a.m., she exits Sacred Heart High School, alone. After leaving school, Michaela walks alone eastbound towards the area considered to be Yorkton's commercial center. Her first stop during the day was already mentioned by Paula as being a surprise to her. At some point between 8.30 and 8.55 a.m., Michaela would enter Terry's Pawn and Bargain, a local pawn shop on 3rd Avenue North. What she was doing at the pawn shop, I don't know. She didn't pawn anything, apparently. So I don't know if she was there for herself, if she was there for a friend. I, that part I don't know. After spending a short amount of time browsing in Terry's Pawn Shop, she would next visit her financial institution, which is located a block away from the pawn shop. Michaela would enter the bank just prior to 9 a.m. You know, she went to TD Bank, um, withdrew a small amount of money, lunch money, right? Um, nothing, you know, exciting or interesting there. Um, then, she, then she went to Tim Hortons. After withdrawing a small sum of cash, she would continue eastbound several blocks, stopping next at a Tim Hortons restaurant. At 9 a.m., Michaela would first enter the Tim Hortons restaurant, but for now, she would only spend a short amount of time inside. After 15 minutes in the restaurant, Michaela would exit, and for reasons only she knows, she would next walk a twisting route through some neighboring streets and parking lots, only to return to the same Tim Hortons 20 minutes later. In this visit to Tim Hortons, Michaela would sit at a table alone for just under an hour, the majority of which was recorded by the restaurant's surveillance camera. And so the surveillance video that people have seen of her that day is from Tim Hortons. So yeah, that that's, and you know what, when I look at the surveillance video, to me it looks like she's waiting, waiting for someone. They're going to have coffee with one of her friends. Um, and, and they sometimes did that, right? You know, they'd take a spare or whatever and, and go have coffee. Um, it shows her, like, she walks in, she buys something. And in fact, she's looking out the windows. And there's a point where she even gets up, walks out, looks around the parking lot, comes back in. So she's definitely waiting to meet someone. At 10.40 a.m., Michaela would exit the Tim Hortons restaurant and again embark on a twisting route through some neighboring streets and parking lots. For the period of time spanning 10.45 to 11.55 a.m., Michaela's whereabouts remain unaccounted for. Prior to this episode, nothing was known about her activities during this period of time. However, Paula did share with me details of a concerning series of text messages she sent to a pair of close friends just prior to the noon hour. Investigators would regain her trail shortly after these messages were sent. Just minutes prior to the noon hour, Michaela would be seen re-entering Sacred Heart High School for a matter of moments. You know what? She returned to school. I think she 
she was there for less than five minutes. Um, I don't think she really did anything there. I'm not sure if she was just looking for one of her friends. She did text two of her friends that day, and I'm not sure that everyone is aware of this information. Um, She texted two of her friends saying, I need help. And about 15 minutes later, she texted them back and said, no, never mind, I figured it out. So that happened almost like previous to to the noontime. So um, why she returned to the school, I don't know. I don't know. There's lots of things that day that kind of strike me as odd. Um, I'm guessing she maybe went back to see one of her friends. Um, Maybe bypass. I, I don't know. I don't know. After leaving her school for the second time during the day, she again travels eastbound in the direction of Yorkton's Commercial Center. We are now approaching the end of the timeline investigators have been able to construct, as Michaela's next stop, well at least at the time of this episode's recording, is her last known location. At roughly 12.30pm, Michaela would enter the Trail Stop Restaurant, a small greasy spoon type diner that shares a building with a bus depot a feature that certainly complicates the search. Good old rural Saskatchewan, right? We have um, a restaurant and then usually the bus, you know, different carriers will stop there. So they have a small bus depot attached to the restaurant or I'm not sure. I think it's more the depots attached to the restaurant than the restaurant attached to the depot. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's called Trail Stop Restaurant and that's where she ate lunch. So she sat there um, for, I think, I guess about approximately an hour, hour plus and had poutine paid with a $10 bill. From that point, um, after she paid at the till, um, it's, it's a pretty small place. So she had she was last seen um, close to the doors, but hadn't exited the doors. At the same time, that's where that person of interest has been identified. Well, has not been identified, I guess. Um, but that's where there seemed to have been, not necessarily an interaction, but they were in the same proximity. At this point, roughly 1.45 p.m., is where Michaela's trail is lost and the police timeline ends. At some point after she was near the exit of the restaurant and bus depot, she simply vanished. As you just heard Paula describe, Michaela was last seen near the exit of the trail stop and in the vicinity of a man who's become a person of interest in this disappearance. The man, commonly referred to as the Tattoo Guy, has yet to be identified despite a massive effort to locate him. Aside from a large tattoo on his forearm, very little is known about him and what, if any, involvement he may have in Michaela's story. When Michaela, after she had paid at the till and was moving towards the door, um, the witness had seen Michaela and this person in not, not touching each other proximity, but kind of headed in the same direction. He may or may not have had anything to do with Michaela's disappearance. He may have seen something he may not have. Um, To date, nothing has come of that. He has a very distinctive um, cross um, with flames from his elbow to his wrist. And um, apparently on the other arm, he had, on the other forearm, he had some some kind of tattoo with circles. And I think he was described as five foot ten or, or taller and a heavier man. And he is apparently not on any databases that they are aware of at this point. So um, that continues to be a mystery, right? Um, 
whoever that person may be, has never been identified. With Paula and Michaela's timelines now shared, in the next series of clips, we'll discuss the more often considered possibilities in Michaela's disappearance, as well as the many tips investigators have received during the past year. Considering where Michaela may be, why she left, and with whom, there are many competing theories. Certainly her last known movements must hold some clues. Given such an unusual day filled with out-of-character behavior, an understanding of Michaela's actions on April 12th must assist in uncovering a clue. When Paula and I discussed her timeline, I asked her what she believes her daughter was doing that morning. The night before she was working on an assignment that she didn't have finished. And so I remember her saying that night, oh, I'm just going to work on it tomorrow. So I think there's a couple of possibilities. Either she just didn't have that assignment ready and she didn't want to hand it in. She just, I'm going to use the word farting around that day, which is totally out of character for her. But more likely to me, it seems that she was planning to meet somebody. And knowing the circumstances of that morning, you know, nothing was taken. No money was taken. She didn't take her cell phone charger. She didn't take her Makeup and makeup was really important to her. Nothing's missing from her room. Nothing that was important or valuable to her. Um, and because of her bad acne, she needed her medication. You know, she had extra medication. It, didn't, it wasn't taken. Um, there's just nothing in my mind that, or that anyone can convince me that she was planning on leaving. But I, I think she was definitely meeting somebody for coffee. If you take a look at the, you know, I've been able to see some of the footage from that morning. Um, just, just hanging out, waiting for somebody. It's hard to disagree with Paula. Michaela seemed to be simply wasting time throughout the day, possibly while waiting to meet with someone. That leads to the question, who was she meeting, if not one of her small group of friends? Sadly, this question is yet to be answered, despite a great effort. Much like many 16-year-olds, a significant amount of Michaela's personal life unfolded on social media and through text messages. If she was planning to meet someone, it'd be reasonable to think she planned or organized it via the cell phone she was seen using while at Tim Hortons. I'd asked Paula about the investigation into the digital footprint Michaela left behind and what information was gained. Fortunately for this situation, I actually owned the phone that Michaela had and had bought it for her. So I had access to all her records. Um, so I guess in some in some ways it's good to know because, you know, certainly you can look at, you know, the people she was contacting. Um, it was two days after she went missing. I, I gathered every computer, every tablet, everything we had in our house and took it to the police station and said, please look through it, you know, in case there's something there that we're not aware of. Um, cause, cause you worry. I mean, you don't know what, what could be going on. Um, uh, the police have access through a variety of court orders and all those processes that they do. I don't really, I have to admit, I'm not very familiar with them. Um, their preliminary word to me is that there isn't anything out of the ordinary on those. So, um, at this point, we, we don't, we just don't think that there's anything, you know, that I'm aware of. Again, you know, I know there's investigative processes that the police have that we may not be aware of everything. And I, I understand that they can't tell us all the information. So I don't have 
I can't tell you with 100% certainty, but that's what we know to date. Regardless of your thoughts on if she was meeting with someone and who it may be, the most often discussed possibilities are that Michaela disappeared either because she ran away or she was abducted. The fact that she was last seen near a bus depot leads some to think she may have gotten on a bus and voluntarily left town. But police investigators have confirmed she didn't board a bus. There are also many disputing facts to the runaway theory. Firstly, her bank account, which still holds a balance, has remained untouched since she withdrew a small amount of money the morning of her disappearance. Secondly, her phone or her social media haven't been used since. When I asked Paula if she gives much thought to this possibility, she again discussed Michaela's behavior leading up to her disappearance as showing no indication she was planning anything. You know, when you have a good relationship with your kids, they don't always share everything, and, and that's fine, but there was nothing. I didn't see anything in her behavior that would have made me, you know, even in hindsight now, I just didn't see anything in her behavior that indicated that she was, um, she wasn't, she wasn't unhappy. She was quite happy. She was, um, you know, just typical girl stuff. Nothing, nothing extraordinary, nothing, um, you know, overtly good, overtly bad. She was, um, she was, she was coming up to the week every music festival. So for her, she always spends more time practicing, right? And so she, she was, you know, putting in her practice time. There was nothing, Nothing to indicate that she had planned anything. The idea that Michaela disappeared against her will seems much more consistent with the facts of her case. When discussing this with Paula, she explained why the Trail Stop restaurant could serve as an ideal place to lure someone. They know who left on those buses and none of them were female. <laughs> um, it, it's unfortunate that it happened at a bus people. Uh, because it, it gives a certain nuance, right? It suggests that she got on a bus and ran away, right? But the reality was it was the restaurant that she ate at. And if you want to hear the conspiratory little bit in me, I truly believe that Michaela went missing from that location for that absolute reason. There is no surveillance video in the bus depot, outside the bus depot, or on that street. That part could have made a huge difference in her case. And that certainly, you know, um, that's something that as a family, we have been lobbying our provincial government to change is to legislate that there be video surveillance in, in larger transportation hubs. Um, because, um, you know, if you would have asked me previous to Michaela disappearing, is there video surveillance where a bus people is? I would say, well, of course, you know. But to find out that there isn't, huge to possibly the outcome. With how little is known about Michaela's motivations on the morning of her disappearance, anything seems possible. And just like the police said to Paula when the police report was filed, she could quite literally be anywhere. Given what little is known about Michaela's disappearance, I asked Paula to tell me what theory makes the most sense to her. Michaela took nothing. Michaela didn't take money. Michaela didn't take possessions. Michaela didn't take anything with her and Michaela's never used her telephone. And I mean, I, I still to this day continue to pay for her cell phone bill in the event she might be able to use it one day to contact somebody. She's never accessed anything. So there's no digital footprint. So, I mean, that can lead us to lots of conclusions, right? I believe she was meeting someone. Now, was this person an internet predator? Was it one of her friends? Was it just somebody in town? 
I, I don't know. Those are those are big questions. But there's not, there has to be some level of answers here. Is it possible Michaela was walking back to school and somebody who she knew said, oh, I'll give you a lift back? That would be the only way that she would willingly get into a vehicle with somebody. I don't know. I don't know. I, I really struggle with with um, what may have happened to her. Um, but I know the realities of our world is human trafficking is also a real possibility. Um, we've been contacted by some people who read Michaela's story and said, that's my story. That's just what happened to me. And um, they have ended up unwittingly in human trafficking as well and say, you know what, don't give up, keep looking, keep looking. I hope that hasn't been what has happened to her. Um, but I mean, like I said, again, you know what, she could be, you know, chained up in somebody's outbuilding. I mean, we know that those are also possibilities that happen to some of these young girls that, that go disappearing. Uh, she could literally be anywhere in the world. I don't say flippantly, but I say with real meaning and intention that she literally could be anywhere. Michaela's probably not alone or she would have contacted someone she knows. Um, she may even look slightly different than, than her photo. So I would say to people, if you um, if you ever have the opportunity to meet Michaela, the first thing you would notice are her eyes. They're a very bright blue, almost like an icy blue. They really catch your attention. And her dimpled chin, <laughs> just got a little dimple in her chin. Take a look at, you know, take a second look at, you know, someone, you know, who may look like they're in a bad situation. And we know human trafficking is happening all around us. Do I know she's in there? No, not necessarily. But I think it's probably a good likelihood. Um, I don't want to sound macabre or anything, but you know what? Michaela's, Michaela's task, there is a body and, and there isn't one. And there is no indications of foul play. I continue to believe that, that Michaela is out there somewhere and that um, she just needs to be found. Using the most frequently discussed theories and considering the absence of any sign of foul play, those searching for Michaela have been doing so, working on the belief that she's alive and out there somewhere. What is especially concerning is that now, one year after the events Paula described earlier, there's yet to be a confirmed sighting since Michaela was last seen near the exit of the Trail Stop restaurant at 1.45 p.m. April 12th. However, as Michaela's face and story began circulating through the national and international media, numerous unconfirmed sightings have been reported from a variety of sources and locations all around the world. One of these sightings received through the Let's Bring Michaela Bali Home Facebook group created a tremendous buzz briefly. It was in the form of a photo of a girl bearing a striking resemblance to Michaela. The photo was shot in Vancouver, B.C., an area known for its high transient population. Okay, I'm not a fan of Facebook. <laughs> Personally, before Michaela went missing, I thought it was a mother of all evils. Sometimes I still think it is. Someone had seen a girl that they thought to be Michaela and that picture, and I will, it's physically extremely similar to Michaela, like extremely similar. And she chose to post it on Facebook publicly. And as soon as I had seen it, I asked her to take it down because I want the authorities to have those pictures, but it leads to a ridiculous amount of speculating by everybody um, as to whether it is or isn't her. When I looked at that picture immediately, I knew it wasn't Michaela. There were some small subtleties, maybe just the mom would notice. But I also know that why would Michaela have access to a phone and have headphones? Right? It doesn't make any sense. When we know the realities is that Michaela has never used 
her debit card. She still has money in her account. She has never used her phone. She has never accessed any kind of health care. She has zero digital footprint. She has never been on anything to indicate she's anywhere. So to me, it was absolutely impossible that this is Michaela sitting there with, with headphones, right? And a phone in her hand. So um, as soon as I see that picture, I mean, it looked just like her. And the police went to an extraordinary amount of investigation. So they determined who this person was, um, met with her, um, examined her ID, did the background check, ensured that this person is who she said she was. But the similarities are, are outstanding. But she is a lovely young lady who's living a life that's, um, that just happens to look like Michaela. This photo, although now confirmed conclusively to not be Michaela, is just one of the many tips generated from the Vancouver area. With so many unconfirmed reports being received, it's become a significant focus in the search. Although investigators have taken every report seriously, Paula has carried out her own search, just to make sure, spending a considerable amount of time in the darkest corners of Vancouver. There was a few tips that were coming from BC. You know, the police investigate them. Um, I'm a mom, I'll be honest. I, I have my own standards or criteria for investigating. It's embarrassing to say this, but I want to make sure <laughs> if there's information that I can find out that doesn't, you know, violate confidentiality or any of those things, I want to find out. I want to look. I want to make sure. So if I know that there are tips coming from a certain area, for example, you know, BC, Granville Street, I was out there. I was pounding the pavement. I was looking. Um, and I'm sure every parent can identify with that. If you think someone has your child against their will, um, heaven and earth would have to, you know, I, I don't know what will stop you. But, you know, and for me, I felt that you know, I kept hearing these tips are coming up and rumors were coming up. And I just could not, in good conscience, not follow up, not do extra. And so, you know, what? I know that police officers cannot feasibly hang missing person posters on every you know, post up and down Granville, but I can. Yeah, we, I was out there, you know, three times looking, searching, going to places I never thought I would go to, <laughs> um, seeing things I never thought I would see, and probably could have lived happily my life without seeing them, um, all in an effort to find Michaela. And those are those are lots of difficult, dangerous things. And, you know, one of the times I went down there was when the fentanyl crisis was hitting. And I spent lots of time with homeless people going to check out, um, you know, some of the, um, they call them strips. So there's a lot of, you know, drug addicts and a lot of drug abuse going on. Going through those areas, tent by tent, person by person saying, you know, my daughter's missing. Can you help me? Have you ever seen her? And those moments are really life-changing, too. Um, some of the addicts. They have nothing. They have nothing. And they wanted to help me find my daughter and to see the humanity in people who um, a lot of people give up on. And we're so touching, um, you know, people who, who really, you know, their, their life is about their next high, but they were willing to help look for a little 16-year-old girl because they know what happens to them down there. So um, through all my trips down there repeatedly, um, there's um, several girls who look like Michaela, who I think may have been mistaken for Michaela. The reality is, didn't find her down there. Spent lots of time down there. Learned, met lots of you know interesting people. Um, but 
um, came back without really, you know, kind of the answers I was looking for. Um, and that kind of leads into the, the um, Northwest United States tips and how those came about. As you just heard Paula mention, the focus of the search has recently been shifted to the Seattle and Portland area of the United States. This development has been widely reported in the American news during the weeks prior to this episode's production. So that sort of um, began a whole process of searching for Michaela now in a different country. And that has lots of implications, right? We were fortunate that National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, became involved in a huge organization in the state. They really felt that they wanted to pursue these, these tips, these leads, and to, you know, really find out if there's any possibility that Michaela is in the Northwest. And so, so they had asked me to do um, a segment called Our Story. And that's um, me and, and family members talking about basically the impact of Michaela. And, and they actually created it into a plea for, for Michaela to reach out or for anyone who has any information to reach out. But again, Michaela has never been confirmed to have been seen anywhere since April the 12th at 145. So although there's this interest and people feel that they might have seen Michaela, there's nothing at all to confirm that she may be there. Everything is so unconfirmed. And I think that's really, it's really hard for people to grasp. This is hard for me to grasp because we also have tips from Europe. We also have tips from the Middle East. So we try not to get too public about them because none of them have ever been confirmed to be her. And always as a parent of a missing child, your fear is everybody's going to go, oh, well, she's in Oregon. Like, we don't have to keep our eyes open here anymore. When the reality is, Michaela could be chained in a basement in Yorkton and have never left the city. Or she could be literally anywhere in the world. At this point, the media coverage and the countless hours of searching have failed to produce any sign of Michaela after the 1.45 p.m. sighting at the Trail Stop restaurant in Yorkton. During our talk, I asked Paula what comes next in the search for her daughter. No matter where Michaela may be at this point, she had to have left from here. And so I still think that there's answers in Yorkton. I think there's answers locally. Um, I think somebody knows or has seen something. I felt that and continue to feel that the school handled Michaela's disappearance in a very non-supportive manner. Simple things like Michaela's high school photos. The school never gave them back to us. The high school didn't. One of the parents who was a teacher seen the photos and gave them back to us personally. Michaela's locker contents were I guess they were just thrown out. They were never given to us, never returned to us. Um, Michaela's classmates asked for um, an empty chair for her in their graduation program in honor of her because she should have graduated with them. They refused to do that. I have found principal and vice principal to be unsupportive. And so we're struggling. You know, I, I'm not expecting somebody to come over here and hold my hand and think, kumbaya with me. But don't throw my children's things out and disrespect her in that manner. I don't find that acceptable. I mean, they didn't even inform us when she was missing. And it's just, it's kind of carried on. And so I guess that makes me feel like there's something here that hasn't been explored or people haven't relayed information that they may know. Something doesn't seem right. 
If you are taken by Michaela's case as I am, you're probably thinking, how can I help? I asked Paula what we, the average people, could do to help in her search for her daughter. I think there's a lot of wonderful things people can do. And certainly, I take a look at Michaela's Let's Bring Michaela Bali Home Facebook account. We also have a web page, Bring Michaela Bali Home. Um, there are details and links there about Michaela, about um, the person of interest, about things that may that may help them be aware of Michaela. And you know what? Oh, something else that if people wanted to help that we're doing is we have, I call them poster packages. And so what we do is we, we get tape, <laughs> the big wide sticky tape, um, Michaela's posters, we put them in plastic sleeves and we've created business cards with Michaela's picture and, and things like that. And we send those out to people. And so a lot of people, so I, within the last month, I know for a fact her poster has gone from Newfoundland all the way across the country up to the Northwest Territories. And so people can get a hold of us. If they're traveling somewhere where they think there may not be awareness of Michaela, to, to let us know and we, we'll send them out a poster package and, and or if they want to print them off of the internet, they can do that or whatever. But it's a good way to um, just to keep spreading Michaela's image out there. And so um, if people want to do that, I think it's great. But yeah, definitely Facebook, you know, hitting that share, it takes two seconds, but it can save a life. I would like to encourage anyone listening to show your support for Paula and the Bollies by joining the Let's Bring Michaela Bali Home Facebook group. By liking and sharing the posts, awareness of Michaela's plight will spread. Also, by joining the conversation that occurs in the group, perhaps you can help view a detail from a new angle. I personally hope to raise awareness for Michaela's story by providing continued coverage. As such, I'd love to hear from anyone who knows Michaela personally or has any suggestions on aspects of the case you'd like to see covered in an upcoming episode of the show. You can contact me anytime at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. I'd also like to send a message to anyone who may have information about Michaela's disappearance. If you've seen something or know something that may help locate Michaela, no matter how big or how small, I ask you to please come forward and share what you know. Call Crime Stoppers anonymously at 1-800-222-8477 and put an end to the suffering. The investigators want your information, not your name. No one will know you phoned unless you tell them you did. And getting this information off your chest, it's going to feel great, and so will the $25,000 reward being offered. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we have also raised a $25,000 reward for her safe return, and that is a testament to a community who really pulled together. We did all kinds of things to raise that $25,000. We did steak suppers. We did barbecues. We did online auctions. We have done bottle drives. You know, even uh, there's a church not far from, from where we live. So they encourage children to bring in any money that they would like to donate and all their fees and everything went toward putting, you know, money into Michaela's reward fund. Many businesses in town, um, you know, Prominent people gave, you know, a lot of money. So, you know, that $25,000 was raised relatively quickly with, you know, a friend's idea that, man, we're not getting the tips we need. We need to we need to work on this. We were hoping that that would make a difference in someone coming forward with some information. After spending now over a year living in the perpetual version of a parent's worst nightmare, I asked Paula to tell me about what effect Michaela's disappearance has had on her family. I can't begin to imagine the strength it must take her to carry on. 
if people have ever experienced the loss of a child, they can probably identify with this, but your whole world is, is turned upside down. Um, so I've taken an unpaid leave from my position. Um, my children, um, you know, April 13th did not go back to school and we've really struggled, um, that year. They didn't, they didn't regularly attend this year. We've worked really hard at helping them to attend. And I think our whole family has really experienced a lot of trauma and not knowing is, is horrible because every person I look at with suspicion, <laughs> I don't know who the boogeyman is. I know there's a boogeyman out there. I don't know who he is, right? Is he my neighbor? Is he, you know, somebody down the street? Is it, you know, some random person? I continue to believe that she's alive in my heart. And so in our house, struggle with, um, we can no longer eat at our dining room table. It's as simple as that. You can't sit there with a place missing. And um, I think it's very difficult to try to put things back together when nobody's willing to move forward and we're still at April 12th <laughs> and we're going to be at April 12th till we find out and rescue Michaela or find out some answers. You know, the children have, I, I take them um, two hours each way uh, to see a trauma therapist. Um, they need that. The pain and anguish of not knowing or understanding what has happened to their sisters, it was so unbearable for them because she was so involved in their lives. It's unconscionable what's happened to their sister. And so over time and with a good therapist, things are, are improving. They they still struggle. We still, you know, we're, we're not at a normal family. And it, and it sounds odd. Um, I still sleep on my living room floor because I can't return to normal life. I can't go sleep in a comfy bed. I not know where my child is. And our whole family is like that. We are um, still in a state of trauma in many ways. Um, we don't celebrate birthdays. We don't celebrate the holidays. Our lives are suspended until, until we know what's happened to Michaela. thank Paula Bali for speaking so candidly about the nearly unspeakable situation she found herself in. Paula, the strength you show and your dedication to your search is a statement to the power of a mother's love. You told me when Michaela was born, you thought, it's you and me against the world. Well, you're holding true to that. Michaela's fortunate to have someone as incredible as you in her corner. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month, you'll have access to supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. On behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the current patrons and welcome the newest members to the group. Erica, Matthew, Miss Smiley, Carol, Jane, Salazar, Colin, and the creepiest tour guide this side of Transylvania, pleasing Tara's own Mike Brown. Without you all, the production of this show would be impossible. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Nighttime Podcast. If you enjoy your time here, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast place you use. Positive reviews are something I take great pride in. A recent reviewer named Doe Miller has the following to say, 
in the review titled Love, Love, Love It. The stories are excellent and the sound quality is great, but the host totally sounds like Aaron from the Generation Y podcast. I actually thought it was him for a minute. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks for the kind words, Doe Miller, but I'm much more of a Justin kind of guy. If you're hearing this, send me an email with your address. I'd like to send you a small token of my gratitude. To stay up to date, follow me on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or any feedback on the show, I'd enjoy hearing from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. My sister, Michaela, vanished a year ago. I miss Michaela and cry for her every night. If you know where Michaela is, call 911. If you have Michaela, take her to a safe place and let her go. Then Michaela can come home to us. Thank you. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.